0: As we discussed earlier in this show, when we looked at Uber and its CEO, Travis Kalanick, success can be incredibly difficult to achieve, and the road to success will nearly always be filled with obstacles. What's also evident in the Uber story is that some of the people who do become the most successful are not always the most admirable. Is there a science to success? And if so, are there real, provable tips and tricks that can make us more successful without alienating everyone? With that in mind, we have decided to make success the topic of this week's Please Explain. And joining me now is Eric Barker, former Hollywood screenwriter, the founder of a blog called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And his first book also has that name, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. It's published by Harper One. Welcome to our show.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you.
0: And as always during these Please Explain segments, we invite our listeners to join in on the conversation. You can give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Eric, you open your book with The Race Across America and the Person Who Won It in 2009. First of all, what's The Race Across America?
1: Uh, Outside Magazine declared the Race Across America the most grueling ultra-endurance event uh, basically ever. Um, some people might think that it's uh, it's a bicycle race. Some people might think it's like the Tour de France, but it's actually quite different because racers go from Atlantic City to San Diego, and once the clock starts, it does not stop. So simply every second counts. Uh, so riders are reluctant to sleep, and they're going 3,000 miles. They usually finish in between 9 to 12 days. Uh, any, any time they take to eat, to sleep, to pause uh, is time that their competitors can pass them. So it is incredibly grueling. Uh, two people have died uh, doing this, uh, this event, and uh, Yuri Robich uh, was uh, the man who, who won that year, and he actually won five times. And uh, what was singularly interesting about Robich was that uh, writer Daniel Coyle, uh, writing about the topic for The New York Times, uh, said that what was Robich's competitive advantage uh, was actually uh, his, quote-unquote, insanity. Because when Robich would ride, he would actually lose his mind. He would hallucinate. He would get in fights with mailboxes. Uh, <laughs> he would cry uncontrollably. But – Uh, This actually allowed him to disassociate from the pain, from the, you know, just the the nonstop grueling nature of the event. And so it was very strange that no, a quality that no parent would wish on their child, that no school would ever encourage uh, in their students. Uh, was a mind-blowing competitive advantage that produced success. And this made me start to ask questions about what really produces uh, success in, in real life.
0: Based on what studies indicate about high school valedictorians, he probably wasn't his high school valedictorian.
1: No. Karen Arnold did research uh, at Boston College on valedictorians, and what she found was that they do quite well. Uh, They they go on to live very good lives, uh, but they don't usually reach the heights of success metrics uh, because what school usually rewards is the personality trait of conscientiousness, is of doing what you're told, following the rules. School has very clear rules. Life doesn't. Um, and so, you know, there are all kinds of ways to, to get ahead in, in life through, through networking. You can, you can be an entrepreneur and do your own thing, whereas school has very strict rules about what you need to do to get ahead. So, valedictorians do quite well. These are, these are people that are very good at complying with rules. Another thing uh, Arnold uh, found was that school rewards being a generalist. So, if you, you might be very passionate about math. But you need to stop studying math, even if you love it, so that you can get A's in history and English and other classes. Whereas life is much more likely to reward you for being a specialist. So in life, uh, you know, if you are excellent at math and become a fantastic computer programmer, uh, but you are terrible at history and English, uh, Google's not going to care. Google's going to be very happy to pay you for your specialty in mathematics and programming, and be, you know, uninterested in uh, those other things. So valedictorians do well But when you look at the height of success metrics, uh, there was actually research done on the Forbes 400, the 400 richest people, and some of them went to college, some of them went to Ivy League colleges, and some of them either didn't go to college or dropped out of college. And what was fascinating was the, the, the subset who did not go to college or dropped out had a net worth of approximately three to four times. As much as the ones who went to graduated from college, and the the subset of dropouts or never attended, uh, actually exceeded the net worth of those who who graduated from Ivy League universities.
0: And that's why we hear that Albert Einstein was a a mediocre student.
1: Steve Jobs uh, dropped out of college. Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of college. Bill Gates dropped. We have we have a long list um, because what we see there is that when you get to the extremes. Um, you know, the, the, the rules bend a bit because people can, people can be passionate, people who choose to, to exercise their signature strengths, those unique qualities that, that, that make them different, or people who leverage what uh, Harvard Business School professor Gotha Makunda calls intensifiers. And those are qualities that are, can be negative at the mean. Those are qualities that, that in general, are bad. So Yuri Robich's insanity uh, is generally bad. But in the right context, they can actually be a, a competitive advantage that devastates the competition.
0: Well, it sounds like I was headed for success. I was a C-plus student in, <laughs> in high school, and then I dropped out of college. Did I go wrong when I went back to college and graduated?
1: Uh, not necessarily. On average, uh, people who who go to college, who graduate college, you know, do do quite well. You know, it's more about that alignment between uh, signature strengths. Uh, a lot of the work on that has been done at the University of Pennsylvania by uh, by Martin Seligman and others. So finding those unique qualities you have, which you know, which are which are which are real strengths. You know, things you're passionate about, things you're good at. Realizing those, encouraging those, and then the second part is is uh, what uh, Boris Groysberg at Harvard Business School calls uh, picking the right pond, and that is finding a place that it rewards those signature strengths, as opposed to find, you know realizing what you're good at, but the place that you're working at or the environment you're in doesn't really respect or reward uh, those those unique abilities that, that you have. But when you align signature strengths and intensifiers, knowing yourself uh, with a, a picking the right pond, finding an environment that rewards those qualities, that's when you're on your path to success.
0: And often I, when I speak to successful people, they'll tell me, well, my father wanted me to be a lawyer, but I really preferred... To write or whatever it was that they have done. Uh, In some cases, they might have become lawyers and uh, not done well simply because that wasn't their calling. On the other hand, somebody else might have been perfect for law
1: absolutely i mean some people might have those those underlying qualities that you know that make people do quite well uh, in the law but you know when when we have something that you know you pursue with dedication if you look at uh, k anders ericson's research that was popularized by malcolm gladwell in the book outliers on uh, 10,000 hours of expertise well while that's not a hard a hard number when people spend 10,000 hours of deliberate practice on something um, you know they usually reach a, a level of of expertise and you have to ask yourself, what makes someone spend 10,000 hours uh, on something? And there's a, a level of, you know, sometimes of obsessiveness uh, or or passion. So that's where you start to see these people who do, who are statistical outliers, who are not the valedictorians who are just kind of playing the game, people who are extremely passionate about what they do. Uh, because when you do the things, what, what often what the research shows is that when we do things that we're good at, uh, that often leads to, to happiness, is that whereas we think that success is going to lead to happiness, when we find the things that make us happy, uh, that is more likely. Happiness is more likely to lead to success than success is to happiness. So when you do things you're good at, when you exercise your signature strengths, if you look, there's research by Gallup that shows the more time you spend on those signature strengths, the more successful you are, the happier you are, the more respected you feel. Uh, just all around, exercising those signature strengths, uh, you know, makes people feel happier and do better.
0: I'm speaking with Eric Barker, who's written a book called, uh, with, a, with a play on his name, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong, and we invite your calls at 212-433-9692. If you want to join the conversation, you can write to us on our show page at wmyc.org, or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. There are also studies about leadership, and uh, it turns out there are two types of leaders. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, that's that's research by Gotham Akunda at Harvard Business School, and uh, what was interesting was uh, on my blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, uh, I had been looking at uh, research for a long time on leadership, and a lot of it was contradictory, and this had you know, really confused and bothered me a bit because some research showed that leaders uh, weren't that important, that if you had a team of A players, they would self-organize and that they didn't really need some figurehead taking all the credit. However, you saw other studies that showed leaders can inspire, they can motivate, they can provide uh, direction, and that they were critical to the, to say the success of, of organizations. And it just seemed completely contradictory. And this was finally cleared up when I spoke to Gotham, and uh, basically what he found was the reason for this split was there were two different kinds of leaders, which he called filtered and unfiltered leaders. And filtered leaders... Uh, are basically people who rise up through the system and pass through all of the uh, the checks and balances and check all the boxes so if you were looking at uh, if they were looking to to bring in a new have a new CEO for a country a uh, company like General Electric that person rising up through the ranks uh, would have to pass the run the gauntlet of all the usual uh, checks and balances and what would happen was the people who rise to the top, who who were who are really in the running, those few candidates, would be basically indistinguishable because they would have been vetted so strongly. And that's why you saw the result where leaders don't really make a huge difference, because in this kind of system where filtered leaders run through so many checks, it, it kind of steam cleans the differences out of them.
0: But okay. haven't we had Second, presidents who are both filtered and unfiltered leaders? Right now we probably have ab- an unfiltered leader.
1: Ab- absolutely. And that was, uh, that was Gotham's uh, Ph.D. thesis, was checking through all of the presidents of the United States, and basically testing his theory in terms of filtered or unfiltered, and the results produced a statistical confidence of over 99%, which is ridiculous, ridiculously confirming of his theory. And that's what you see: is that unfiltered leaders. uh, They don't go through the standard. They're entrepreneurs who do their own thing. They're uh, the people who, uh, when when a when a president steps down or, or is assassinated, and the vice president rises, you know, you have people who weren't who didn't go through the standard checks and balances, and they tend to produce huge sweeping changes. Often those changes are negative, but sometimes those changes are, are great positives. Abraham Lincoln would be considered an unfiltered leader. He ended slavery. So it, it, it can vary, but what you're getting is someone who hasn't passed through the standard filters, so they produce big changes, often negative, sometimes positive, positive. and Trump would definitely fall into the category of unfiltered.
0: But uh, filtered would suggest that they've had a lot of experience In the field, whether we're talking about politics or something else, isn't that a positive?
1: It depends because it depends uh, upon the situation that you're in. So if uh, the, the country you're talking about or the industry you're talking about is in good shape, everything's running smoothly you know, going with a filtered leader is a good idea because they know how things work and they're going to play by the standard rules. Uh, If things are not going well, then, you know, going with the tried and true uh, isn't working and it's going to just dig the hole deeper. So when industries are not in good shape, when countries are bad and they need change, then it's a good idea to have an unfiltered leader and take the risk uh, when change is essential.
0: The reason I ask is uh, recently... uh did an interview in which we looked at um, the way, <coughs> excuse me, industry used to be. Uh, IBM, you'd work your way up. Uh, after 25 years, you became the CEO, and then you stayed in that office for a while. Nowadays, it's they, somebody with an MBA comes in who had no experience in the field. Yeah, and and yeah. business isn't doing as well now as it did during the boom years when that other approach was the standard and
1: i mean that's the kind of thing where it's very specific you know to to the industry where is is a big change required because if you stick if you if you stick with what's not working uh then you're in bad shape sometimes it you need somebody outside to come in on the other hand uh if things are running pretty smoothly having someone come in and make unnecessary sweeping changes is is probably not a good idea
0: i'm talking with eric barker who uh, has a blog called Barking Up the Wrong Tree and now a book with the same title, subtitled The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success Is Mostly Wrong? It's published by Harper One. We'll take a little break and come back with more. Uh, we'll take your calls. Our number here is 212 433 9692. You can write to us on our show page at wmyc.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And we are back with Eric Barker, who's written a book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. We'll get to some more of the things that he has learned through the various uh, studies that have been done. But let's take a few calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. Ben from Manhattan, you're on the air.
2: Yes, uh, good afternoon. I'm glad to be here. Um, I I love the title of this book, Barking Up the the Wrong Tree, because uh, it's picking out the right tree in the forest, that is the tough part. And uh, very often, or sometimes, the tree is not even there. Um, uh, Two two quick um, uh, examples of what I'm talking about. In my own experience, and this is many years ago, I was tested, um, approaching college, I was tested for what might be a skill, uh, that I would have that I might not be aware of and basically they didn't come up with any suggestions saying, well you're good at this you're good at this you're good at this you can do a whole variety of things which was not very helpful but some years later many years later in fact when my son at the age of 13 began to insist that I buy him an IBM PC and this is probably not more than four or five years after it was invented And I couldn't for the life of me understand what this kid is going to do with this machine. That was a half a mystery to me as well at that time. In any event, he got a machine and in a very short period of time, completely had figured out the architecture of the machine, how it worked, began to teach himself languages, and became, over a number of years, became really a crackerjack coder. Something that obviously was well beyond the kind of thing that I could have understood at that time, although later on of course I did. He however recognized a skill in fact, when he went to college, he insisted on going to a school that did not require him to study a language. He found that language is difficult for him, yet he became a terrific coder, which basically is writing a language uh, and and it 's a to me a a great surprise, however. He would not have been able to do that if the PC wasn't around. So him being in the right place at the right time with the right skill was the big thing that I think made it work for him. And I think there was a case with Bill Gates who admitted at some point that, or or, uh, people wrote about him anyway, saying that if he had really done what he did 10 years, or tried to do 10 years earlier than he did, or 15 years earlier, he would not have been able to do it. He was a great example of a person with a particular skill at exactly the right point in exactly the right place.
0: Eric?
1: Yeah, I think what's really interesting here is uh, there's an excellent book by Peter Sims called Little Bets. Which Where he describes uh, how we can find kind of those opportunities and those those things which are are you know of our time, which are in our reach, because many of us kind of get tunnel vision you know after a little while in our careers, and little bets are basically trying new things that are low time investment, low resource, and just giving things a shot, basically treating your time almost like a venture capital firm would, where they make ten investments, realizing that seven of them will fail, two of them might break even and one might be the next Google or Facebook. And when we take five to 10% of our time and make sure to keep trying new things, the world's changing so fast. If we keep making little bets and giving things a shot, trying new things, then we can discover those opportunities that will lead to that next job, that next hobby, that next relationship. Because often we're not trying enough things, and the world's changing so fast, we need to be sampling what's going around to, to find that next great opportunity. And that's where low low investment, little bets can really pay off, like for instance, you know, trying that new computer, you know, and giving it a shot and learning, you know, instead of a normal uh, speaking language, uh, coding as a language by trying things out, giving it a shot.
0: But uh, in this case, he probably had a predisposition. Uh, Can we say that genetics plays a role in all of whether we become a success or a failure? Obviously, if you're born into a wealthy family, uh, that sure gives you a leg up. Oh,
1: undoubtedly. Uh, but even if you have genetic advantages, uh, if you never give things a try, if you, never, you, might, you might have the, the, right, the right build and, the, and the, the right genetics to be a fantastic tennis player, but if you never pick up a racket, you'll never know. So we need to go out there and try things and give them a shot and see you know, whether this is going to be something that works for us or something that doesn't. And doing that in a low-resource-intensive sort of way lets us find out hey, what do you know? This might be something. And I, I talk about uh, some of the, the genetic issues uh, in the book where some people have you know, genetic issues which seem, much like Yuri Robich's insanity, seem like a negative. Uh, you know, Michael Phelps has a very oddly proportioned body in many ways. His, his arms are too long, his, he's quite gangly, he doesn't move well on land, but he's excellently designed to be a swimmer. But again, to, to figure that out, you won't realize that unless you get
0: into the pool. Now, before we go to another call, I want to address something where we may be disagreeing. You write, research shows that very creative people are more arrogant, dishonest, and disorganized. They also get lower grades in school. Well, that's often the case. But has but that hasn't been my experience as an interviewer of creative people. Uh, writers, actors, directors, visual artists all uh, often come across as not arrogant, um, Rather organized, very thoughtful? Um, or are you talking about somebody like a con artist? Bernie Madoff was a success for many years. <laughs>
1: I mean, what what you see across the board is that, you know, creative people are more likely to, to break the rules. You know, sometimes in, you know, maybe perhaps in certain contexts and not in other contexts, but it's really funny because when you look, you listen to most elementary school teachers or high school teachers, they, they say they love creative students. Yet when you look at the research studies, it actually shows that they don't mm-hmm. like uh, creative students because they're more inclined to question things, to break the rules. And one of the things we're primarily teaching kids, at least in elementary and high school, is show up on time, do your homework, do what you're told. And what you see across the board is, you know, creative students are experimenting. They're trying new things. And trying new things means bending or breaking the rules. So they're gonna, you're going to see more behaviors, not necessarily someone who's totally disagreeable and difficult all the time, but you're going to see someone who is going to question, bend, or break the rules because that's
0: what creativity entails. And that would lead to success in the arts?
1: I mean, if you're going to move, if you're going to move the needle forward, you know, to be able to evolve an art form, what you actually see. Uh, Dean Keith Simonton has done a lot of the really interesting research on creative people, and you know, many, many of many people have often said about the, the connection between mental illness and creativity. And what Dean Keith Simonton found was that among people who are. are kind of creative, uh, you see no higher incidence of mental disorders. But among people who are extremely creative, then yes, you do see a higher incidence uh, of mental disorders. Um, and in many ways, that is aligned with thinking differently, doing things differently. And that's what it takes to have a very different perspective, to put a very different lens on the world, and to help evolve an art form and move it forward.
0: Nikki from Norwa, Connecticut, you're on the air.
3: Oh, hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Um, as I was listening to this, I'm I'm pretty much the person you've been describing all along. I was Al-Victorian, I did very well in school, and I went to college. I got a degree in computer science, actually, engineering. And for a few years, I was a programmer full-time, uh, about four years, and then I quit because I wasn't finding it fulfilling. It was kind of what you were saying also, um, finding the right, I I think you said pod? Mm.
0: Uh, pod, And and you also write about quitting in this book.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like I should read your book, (laughs) so I'm definitely definitely leaning towards that. But what I asked the screener was whether in your book, uh, you just addressed this with your answer about the Little bets book, but whether in your book you help uh, give any advice, I guess, to someone like me who feels a little lost. Because I'm generally good at things, and it's really easy for me to to pick up a new interest. I'm interested in too many things, and I guess I want to apply myself in a new job where I feel fulfilled. <clears throat> fulfilled, sorry, but um, I don't want to. I, I don't want to go barking up the wrong tree again, and I don't want to waste my skills either. But I, I, it's hard for me to focus. It's hard for me to find what am I most passionate about. I have. Too many scattered interests, and I—I yeah. I don't know if there's any advice you could give for nailing something down. Before.
1: Eric, there's some really interesting uh, research by uh, Gabriel Ettingen at uh, at uh, NYU. And uh, she found, in terms of when people, because right now your uh, grit is kind of having its its day in the sun, where everybody's talking about uh, grit, persistence, you know, uh, over long term goals. Because a lot of people have trouble with that. But but the truth is that we also do need to quit. We can't just keep adding more and more things. We only have a limited amount of time in the day. And of course, the big question becomes, what do you stick? What do you stick with? And what do you quit? Um, and what she found was a great little acronym. That's easy to remember. It's WOOP, W-O-O-P. And that stands for wish, uh, outcome, obstacle, and plan. And the first, first thing people are very good at, which is what am I, what am I wishing for? Uh, you know, how, how successful do I want to be, whatever you want to be. in? the second step is outcome, which is what, what is the specific – if this is my wish, what is the specific outcome? that I would like to, to achieve. And then the third part is what most people skip, it's where most people, most people fail, is, and that is looking at the obstacle. What is the obstacle that's preventing me from getting to that goal? And then once people consider the obstacle, to take a second and make a plan. What's really interesting about this exercise is not only does, is it a simple way for people to develop plans about how to move forward with their interests or their career, but what's really interesting is that it also acts as a litmus test. Is What she found is that when people went through wish, outcome, obstacle, plan, if they felt very energized, if they felt very excited and they wanted to move forward, those were often the plans that were likely to succeed, they were likely to follow through with, they were likely to do well. Eric, we're we pretty
0: much out of time, oh, unfortunately. And Well, it's not your fault, but uh, two quick questions, and you got to give them real quick answers. Better okay. to be an extrovert or an introvert, and a listener wonders why success is usually measured in dollars earned.
1: 10 seconds. Okay. Uh, uh, extroverts uh, often, are, often are happier and do quite well in networking. Introverts are much more likely to become experts in their field. Uh, success is often measured in dollars uh, because we're good at counting things. Uh, being a good dad or a good mom is very hard to measure. There's no metric for it. So we need to develop one of our own, a personal definition of success and in the area. Of Eric
0: Barker's book is called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Surprising Science Behind It, Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong, published by Harper One. Thank you so much for being on our show.